here it comes again, lunch. Will it be the same old, same old? Or are you ready to take a vacation from the ordinary with the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub at Firehouse Subs? Freshly sliced smoked turkey breast, craveably sweet mustard sauce, and a hint of Caribbean seasoning. Just $5.55 for a medium. Save time. Order the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub on the Firehouse Subs app. Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs. Save more lives. Participating locations. Limited time only. Plus tax. Prices may vary for delivery. This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling.俺はこの<笑> ロスインゴベルナーブレスでハポを応援してくださる両国のお客様。2017年夏のファイナル思う存分叫んでください。意味武士様だ。of the mat on the voices of wrestling podcast network hello and welcome to music of the mat the podcast devoted exclusively to the music of pro wrestling it's all part of the voices of wrestling podcast network i'm your host andrew rich and joining me today is someone who you've already heard on this podcast before and it's great to have him back on the show it's chris novembrino chris Welcome back to the podcast. Andrew, thank you for having me back, and I'm very excited to be here. It's It's been a few months since I've been on Voices of Wrestling because Lucha the Hidden Temple is seasonal. Obviously, if there's no Lucha Underground on television, there's no Lucha of the Hidden Temple, 
But it's great to be back on Music of the Mat. I am very excited to go through. we got a number of songs to chop through here today. This is going to be fun. We do. We do. Yeah. Uh, it's more than the Nakamura episode, which was the last episode you were on. Uh, that episode had four themes. Yes. I think. Uh, this is seven. But we'll get to all that eventually, of course. Uh, yeah, man. It's good to have you back on the show. It's great to have you back. This is the first episode of 2018. The year is... Stretched out before us like an open book, just waiting to be filled with wrestling and tweets and regrets and and all the wonderful nonsense that the future has in store for us. Uh, Of course, when every new year rolls around, uh, people tend to have uh, resolutions they want to keep. Uh, Chris, do you have any resolutions by any chance? This year, I am officially getting off of my vape. So two years ago, I started quitting cigarettes. And when I did that, I switched to using one of these vape things and started on a very, very high dosage of nicotine. And I have been slowly phasing myself down week after week. So over 100 weeks here, I went from the basically the highest amount I could get because I wanted to make sure when I quit, I completely quit. And now I am down to two milligrams. So by some point here in the next few months, I will be off of this box for good and officially nicotine-free, which is exciting. Oh, congrats, man. That's great. I'm really proud of you. Thank you. And how about yourself? What is your New Year's resolution? Yes, my New Year's resolution is basically to watch more wrestling. I, I always kick myself that I should be watching more wrestling than I am. It's kind of like a guilt thing, like I'm not appreciating it enough, just how much awesome wrestling is out there available to watch. Uh, You know, Chris, there are children in Africa who don't have no other reborn, so you you better watch it or it's going to go to waste. Um, And I'm Jewish as well, so it's kind of, the guilt is kind of encoded into my DNA. Uh, So I'm going to do it, I'm going to watch more wrestling, I'm going to add Noah the reborn and maybe some dramatic dream team to to my watch list. Uh, some other places as well. We'll see how long it lasts, of course. Uh, I am a busy man. I have this podcast. I've got my TV shows to watch. I've got work to do. I've got all this other stuff going on. Uh, so we'll see. It's tough to strike a balance. Now, did you set aside some time to watch Wrestle Kingdom? I watched all of Wrestle Kingdom. Um, we should mention, probably right now, that we are recording this episode on the evening of January 4th. So Wrestle Kingdom 12 has come and gone wasn't the smartest decision on my part to watch it because uh, I had work in the morning at 11 a.m. And the show didn't end until 8.10, I believe. Yeah. 8.10 a.m. So I got a good hour and a half of sleep in me. I love staying up late for Wrestle Kingdom, but it, the five-hour length for where I'm at, which is Central Time... By the time we get to the main event, it's always like 6 a.m. or 7 a.m. here. And I'm a Nighthawk, but even this Nighthawk tends to be thinking about bed around 6. So yeah. I had to really rally for Jericho and Omega, which I enjoyed a lot, and then make a second rally for Naido and Okada. But that was pretty easy. It was a pretty easy match to get my juice off of uh, because my body was failing but my interest in the match was not yeah when you're interested in the matches and their uh, high intensity high drama high action it is easier to stay awake and stay focused and alert 
as opposed to just, you know, some random match that you don't really care about. Like the Rambo. I probably would have fallen asleep if that was on at 6 a.m. <laughs> hey, 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 come on now. D- don't insult the Rambo. It's a fun time had by all. Yes, I, I'm aware it has its niche audience. I am that niche audience, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, yeah, it was an excellent show, I thought. Uh, I mean, when you stay up really late and you have work on the horizon, you always ask yourself, is this a good idea? Is this a bad idea? But when it's a show like Wrestle Kingdom, you know. It's always a good idea. It's the measuring stick with which all other wrestling shows every year are measured against, because mostly because of the calendar. Yeah. It's not like, but it also is because the wrestling on Wrestle Kingdom for the last several years has been superior wrestling, and it's an easy thing to go, oh, was this match better than the Okada match that headlined Wrestle Kingdom this year? Yeah, the, the calendar, that's a really good point. I mean, when you have a show at the beginning of the year, it, it does set the tone for how the rest of the year will play out, and it does provide uh, a recurring comparison point uh, between that show and the rest of the other shows. But anyway, today, Chris, it is episode 24, and we are doing sort of a half-stable theme history, half-album review type of thing, because we are looking at the themes of the New Japan stable Los Ingobernables de Japón, Tetsuya Naito, Evil, Sanada, Bushi, and Hiromu Takahashi. And recently, New Japan put out an album of all their themes, so we're going to discuss them in the order of the album track listing. Now, I had chosen this topic uh, a few days before Wrestle Kingdom 12, uh, because LIJ were in a lot of high-profile matches on the card. And now that the show is over, uh, we know by now that LIJ had a a very mixed bag of of a Wrestle Kingdom. Uh, Evil and Sonata won the IWGP Tag Team Championship. Uh, Hiromu did not win the IWGP Junior Heavyweight Championship. And Naito also did not win the IWGP Heavyweight Championship. Uh, much to the shock and chagrin of many people. But win or lose, LIJ remain an extremely popular stable. Uh, you see their merch all over New Japan shows. A lot of people cheer for them even though they're technically a heel stable. Uh, Chris, we'll start with you. Uh, are you a big LIJ fan? Um, where do they rank in your favorite staples going today? Well, I'm definitely a fan of the stable. Um, now, when we're talking about ranking them, are we talking about like across all of wrestling in terms of factions? Because that's a really interesting question. How about this? We'll keep it to New Japan, just to keep it simple. Okay. In terms of New Japan, I think they're the most interesting one because the Bullet Club, they necessarily have to hang around because of merchandise sales. You can't just get rid of them. But in terms of where all the narrative action is at, Los Ingobernables, and see, we haven't even gotten into the fact that I practiced all day to try to get this name right, and I still can't get it down, so I'm going to like be trying to dodge around it and punting every time this name of this faction comes up. L-I-J, I, I, uh, I noticed that you went with that. That's very clever. I, uh, I, I took 12 years of Spanish. It, it comes easy to me. Oh, well, look at you. I, hey, look, uh, I'm, not, I'm not bragging. I'm, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. I barely got through Spanish in college. Uh, that's, that's an entirely different story. But <laughs> in terms of LIJ, now I'm catching the swing of things. 
I really enjoy them. I think that Naido has the most interesting story, and now he's clearly on a chase arc, as you mentioned here. And Sonata is a guy with a lot of talent uh, who I remember back in the days when I was first doing stipulation on Voice of Wrestling. Sonata was over in TNA and he was with Muda. He was like the Muda pupil. And I liked him. I saw a lot of potential with this guy, but he needed to have a gimmick that actually really, you know, suited him. And I think this year was a really good year for Sonata, like his match with Okada. That was a great match for him and you know, really distinguished him. Um, I enjoyed this faction a lot. Bushi, give him a lot of life, the repackaging of Bushi. Even, you know, Hiromu and two, I'd say the least of them, uh, Evil, everybody has benefited from being in LIJ. And so on that level, I like them. I wouldn't say that I get super excited for them because it's kind of like, what do they do? And factions in New Japan, it's like chaos. Like, what was chaos's real narrative arc? The Bullet Club are the one that tend to actually have like a concrete story. Like Cody and Kenny Omega have a slow burn story where eventually Cody is going to, you know, kick Kenny Omega out. I think that's where the story is going. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a really big fan of the group. They're definitely one of my favorite stables going today. Uh, and they're definitely my favorite heel stable in New Japan over Suzuki-Goon uh, and Bullet Club. And I think one of the bigger reasons is that they've managed to maintain this air of uniqueness around them. They're not like other heel stables in New Japan. They're special. I mean, for one thing... They're anti-heroes. Yeah. I mean, for one thing, they're not bloated. That's a huge positive. They only have uh, five guys in the group in total. Meanwhile, you've got Suzuki-Goon, who have nine guys. And you've got Bullet Club, who are even more bloated, with 14 guys in it. So there's... A closeness with LIJ that you don't have with the other stables that are just these these massive conglomerates that at this point are, are, are kind of scattered. I mean, you've got Bullet Club guys who are based in Japan, like Fale and Yujiro and, and Omega, and you've got Bullet Club guys who are based in North America, like the Bucks and Cody and Hangman Page. LIJ, they're all in Japan. They're never not together. And because there are only five guys in the group, each one can have their own role to call their own. I mean, Naito is the leader. Evil is the hoss. Sonata is the good-looking, fast-paced guy. Bushi is the sneaky, underhanded you know, sleazeball. And Hiramu is the daredevil. Compare this to other groups where some of the roles can be interchangeable. You can have Taichi or Taka or El Desperado swap around as the cheating, interfering junior heel. You can have Hangman Page or Chase Owens or Yujiro swap around as the requisite lower card guy in a tag match. Not true for LIJ. Everyone has a role that is unique to them, and, and thus everyone stands out. And one more thing I love about them, too, is that each guy has their own color schemes. Naito has red and black. Evil has purple and black. Sonata has kind of a black-blue combo. And Bushi and Hiromu are multicolored. What does every guy in Suzuki-gun wear? Black. What does pretty much everyone in Bullet Club wear? Black. LIJ are this multicolored team that just jump off the screen. I think part of it's that LIJ is not entirely heel 
anymore. Like when they first rolled out Lij, they were obviously heels. True. But now that Naido has gotten over with the crowd, I, I, and I mean even stories that they've been telling with other members of this faction, like Hiromu is in a chase story. Sonata had a really strong showing against Okada, where he kept his chin up throughout. There are a number of events that have occurred throughout New Japan in 2017, where you can see them trending more towards chaos not like the the concept but like the faction chaos back when they were kind of at their peak where they were essentially heels i guess but effectively faces yeah heel leaning tweeners is probably the best way to put it um the stables in new japan are, are on different parts of the spectrum you've got taguchi japan who are the pure baby faces you got Chaos, who are face-leaning tweeners. you got LIJ, who I just said are heel-leaning tweeners. You've got Bullet Club, who are definitely, I think, more heelish than LIJ, but not full-blown baddies in, in some cases. And then you got Suzuki-Goon, who are the ultimate bad guys, who always cheat. Yeah, I like that a lot. I guess if we wanted to talk about the history of LIJ, it'd be a pretty long story. But ultimately, I think what you can boil it all down to is that LIJ is a group that was founded on rejection. Yes. That's where the root of it lies. Tetsuya Naito won the G1 Climax in 2013, and it looked like he was going to get the rocket strapped to him. He was going to be the next big babyface star. He was going to wrestle Okada for the IWGP heavyweight title in the main event of Wrestle Kingdom 8. There, there was just one problem. The crowd didn't feel that way. Exactly. Something happened along the way where Naito gets rejected. He gets rejected by the fans who, as the year goes on, become less and less enthusiastic for Naito and more and more apathetic. They just stop caring about him, even booing him at times. Then he gets rejected by New Japan management because he earned the right to main event the Tokyo Dome by winning the G1. Then, because of the reactions, New Japan puts the... fan vote. Yep, they put his main event spot up for grabs in a fan vote between his match with Okada and another match, Nakamura versus Tanahashi, for the Intercontinental Championship, which is technically a lesser belt. And the fans voted for the IC belt match to be the last match on the card, the, the true main event of Wrestle Kingdom. So his main event was stolen from him. And then after that, Naito lost the never openweight belt to Ishii at New Beginning. And then he basically did nothing for a year and a half. It's not like he stunk. He was he was still But he wasn't great either though. Cuz I remember those matches. I remember 2013-2014 Naito and Whenever he was being asked to have a big match, it was fine. It was by the numbers, and it never disappointed outright, but it never took you to that next level, which is where you have to be in order to be the guy with the IWGP title. Yeah, technically, the matches were fine, but emotionally, narratively, within the grand scheme of things, it lacked that certain something. That kept Naito at a certain level. He couldn't advance to the level of Tanahashi or Okada because 
there was no weight behind any of it. That weight, that, that, that destiny, that story was essentially ripped from Naito's hands. Now, he goes to CMLL during the summer of 2015 for a little while, and he hangs out with his old buddy, his old pal, La Sombra, and he joins the stable Los Ingobernables, the original version. And that's where he changes. That's where La Sombra introduces him to the lifestyle of Los Ingobernables. He realizes that he doesn't have to take this shit anymore. He can fight back against the fans. He can fight back against management. And how does he do that, Chris? By not giving a fuck. Exactly. Rejection. Not giving a fuck. Naito is supposed to be the fun, energetic babyface? No. I'm gonna meander to the ring as slowly as I want to. I'm gonna refuse to tag out my partners in a tag match. I'm gonna wear a full suit and slowly take it off so everyone has to wait for the match to start. I'm gonna spit on my opponents. Oh, I'm sorry. Are you mad? Are you frustrated? Tranquilo, tranquilo. Just calm down. And that's where LIJ was born. Rejecting what people want you to be and doing your own thing. This made his matches so much better, though, because now we had a new element of pacing that heretofore was absent. Before, Naido's matches, because Naido can do this, were boom, boom, boom. He was a very fast-moving guy. He was previously a junior and then transitioned into being a heavyweight, and a lot of that speed, he was able to retain that in moving up in weight class. But now, coming back with this new attitude... He started slowing the match down, and we would get these slow pauses. He lays down on the ground. He looks at the audience. He looks like he's going to run and pick up a whole bunch of speed, and he's picking up a head of steam, and he's going to kick someone, and then he slows down and just paintbrushes <laughs> you across the face. He uses pacing in this way that it, it, a masterful musician or a masterful order is able to use and get different effects out of. Exactly. It's all about sticking it to the fans who rejected him in the first place and not giving them what they want. They want the bombastic, full speed ahead, big crazy moves Naito. Oh my god, here comes the tope! And instead he just bounces off the ropes and does a somersault into the tranquilo pose. You want the old fun Naito? The one that did the Stardust Press while you booed him? Well, that Naito is gone now. And this Naito, the one who does the Destino, is here. The slow parts make the fast parts seem faster. Yeah, and as the other members of LIJ came together, you can look at them as rejecting in their own ways as well. New Japan has this reputation for being a serious wrestling company with an emphasis on the sport of wrestling. Well, here comes Evil, who dresses like a Power Rangers villain with laser fingers and a scythe. Sonata is supposed to be the young, handsome, charismatic, go-getter babyface. Instead, he wears a skull mask, and he wears all black, and he carries a baseball bat with him, and he rarely talks, and he never smiles. Bushi started as uh, the, the high-flying, masked junior babyface wrestler, like a lot of guys. Now he's this grimy, 
cheating heel who mists people and chokes them out with a t-shirt. And Hiromu is, I guess, just fucking nuts, and he's rejected his sanity. So each guy has their own form of rebellion, and I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, I I like it a lot. So we just watched Wrestle Kingdom last night, and as you mentioned, Sonata and Evil won the tag team titles, but Hiromu didn't win, and neither did Naido. Of the two that did not win, was there a loss that disappointed you or surprised you? You know, the main event with Okada pinning Naito did surprise me. I actually said, wow, out loud to myself when the three count was made. And, you know, as the day wore on, to be quite honest, I found myself falling in love with the finish more and more. Because the finish is Naito planting Okada with the Destino in the center of the ring. He has him dead to rights, but he doesn't cover him. Instead, he grabs Okada's wrist, and he gets this huge, just joyous expression on his face. And he points to this side of the crowd, and he points to that side of the crowd, and he's going to hit another Destino just, just to make sure that Okada stays down for good. And he's going to win the match. Nope. Spinning Tombstone, Rainmaker, one, two, three. You're done. And it's such a... Oh, I love it. It's such a brilliant ending. Because Naito had spent so long, so long, building himself back up to main eventing the Dome. Building himself back up to wrestling for the heavyweight belt at Wrestle Kingdom by being the Tranquilo L.I.J. Naito character. That was the turning point. That was the upswing when he stopped being the stardust genius and started not giving a fuck, started doing things his own way, building his own crew. He was on the way to glory. And it was in his grasp. But in the end, he couldn't help himself. He couldn't not get carried away. He couldn't keep his emotions in check. It's that look on his face. I'm going to do it. I'm going to hit this big, definitive destino, and that's going to be the finish line. I'm going to win. No, he shouldn't have done that because it was in that brief moment, that that, that five-second interval of time, when Naito stopped being El Ingobernable and slipped back into the mindset of the Stardust genius, the guy who wants to be the big babyface hero that everyone loves. And it was that split-second loss of control that cost him in the end. And it, it's so revealing, too, that no matter how hard he tries to not be that guy anymore, to not be the Stardust genius, there's that part of him, that, that little part of him inside, that still wants to be that ultimate babyface superstar. Oh my oh god, it's so incredible. It's so good. It's the narrative tension that lays underneath Naido's character, which is that, okay, so he's supposed to be this guy who doesn't give a fuck and doesn't really want it, and he's nonchalant, and he takes his time getting down to the ring, and he really doesn't care. But if he really didn't give a fuck, why does he keep wanting to be in the main event at the Tokyo Dome? Why does he keep 
wanting to win the IWGP title if it didn't really matter to him. And so that's what I enjoyed so much at the finish because at the end, as you said, you see doubt break through the veneer of not giving a fuck. And he needs to hit that last Destino because he doesn't believe the one he just hit was enough. Yeah, it's... It's it's great, man. Exactly. It's great. It's, great. it's classic New Japan Pro Wrestling booking. He's going to win the title eventually, y'all. Chill out. Tranquilo. Tranquilo. Yes, Tranquilo. It's coming. Tranquilo. Senayo. There are probably some people who don't like that we enjoyed the finish, but uh, it's how we feel. We, we can't help it. Oh, what are they going to be mad at me for? I, I just want to brace for impact. <laughs> Well, well, you know, Naito should have won and all that stuff. Oh, okay, okay, they're just stands. I hey, hey, that's uh, that's your word, not my man. All right, don't, don't put that on me. Oh, all, all right, right. <laughs> no, no, don't hang it on Andrew. Come at me at Chris Novembrino. <laughs> all right, all right. Well, with all that said, Chris, I'm ready to play some themes. Are you ready? Yes. All right. Well, almost all of the themes that we have today are by Yonosuke Kitamura, except for the first one. We begin with the leader, El Capitan de Los Ingobernables de Japón, the uncontrollable charisma Tetsuya Naito. His theme is by a music duo that I believe is pronounced Kazushin, but it's spelled K-A-Z-S-I-N. This is Stardust. What's great about this theme, and this theme is great, is that you can talk about it in two ways. First, we'll start with the music by itself. This pulsing, energetic, fast-paced, synth-heavy music. Not 100% electronic techno, because it is interlaced with some rock guitars, but that's sort of the overriding sound here. It's got this uplifting melody to it, both in the A section, you and the B section, which is It's great music to have if you're a babyface, because to your ears, it does sound very positive, it gets your blood pumping, and that style of music is not out of place in a country like Japan, which does utilize a lot of upbeat techno for its babyface stars. Uh, Kento Miyahara in All Japan, now Michi Marafuji and Noah, all of the Dragon Gate guys. There is a pattern there, Chris, and it, it does work, because 
there are a lot of great themes in this style. Yeah, I think the genre choice is a very standard style of genre choice. Now, what's interesting is you identify the melody as upbeat, and I also feel that way. However, the melody is actually written around and over a minor key. So it begins in the key of E minor, and then it actually does this interesting thing in the B section of the melody where that main melody the ba da 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 it moves up a few keys so it actually moves to g minor and gives us that little motion um and i like i was talking to you about this before we got on the air the section that comes up around 2 minutes and 30 seconds in where it's this big ascension pattern and this chord change and a lot of this style of composition is stuff that I associate with the HAL video game company and like the music that they wrote for Kirby. I don't know if you ever played a lot of Kirby Superstar or anything like that. Uh, no. No? Alright, well, if you're looking for a video game analog, compositionally speaking, Kirby is the touchstone that I was hearing here. Like you said, that awesome rising chord progression, you know, dun 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 That's a great moment, too, because uh, it leads to that Boom! Mm-hmm. And this wave of synth washing over us, you know. And I love that because in the context of his entrances, when you have a moment like that, it gives Naito this sort of period of reflection where he can take a step back and look out over the crowd and, and reflect on what's going on. It's hard to describe, really. He's got the timestamps with his entrance down because this section of his theme always does seem to occur at a notable point or, I guess, organically creates a notable point inside of his entrance. I did not realize that that ascension only really happens once in his theme and it's about 2 minutes and 30 seconds in. It's actually pretty far along. Yeah, yeah. Now, you can also talk about this song in the context of Tetsuya Naito and his career arc. And that's something that I think is so fascinating. I'm going to give full credit to Showbuckle here for this. Um, do you know who Showbuckle is on, on YouTube, Chris? I do not know Showbuckle. Okay, he's this guy on YouTube who makes these excellent videos analyzing New Japan and their stories and their production and all that stuff. And he did a video on Naito and his arc over the years. And he talked about how Naito spent a good number of years basically living in the shadow of Hiroshi Tanahashi. Because when No Limits split up, when Naito and Yujiro split up, Naito was sort of destined to become the next big babyface superstar, the next Hiroshi Tanahashi. And in that respect, if you look at Naito during those years, uh, 2011, 2012, 2013, there was a lot about Naito that presented him as a younger, flashier, next-generation version of Tanahashi. Tanahashi has the nickname Once-in-a-Century Talent. Naito has the more theatrical nickname Stardust Genius. Tanahashi's finishing move is the High Fly Flow, Naito's finisher is the fancier, flippier Stardust Press. Here's where the theme music comes in. And Showbuckle doesn't mention this, but I think it fits in right with it. Can't you hear Stardust as trying to be the cooler, 
more ostentatious version of Tanahashi's old theme, High Energy? Yes. Yes, I can. Because High Energy is this epic, upbeat, babyface music with the guitars. Stardust is kind of the same thing, except it's wilder and flashier with the techno. It's trying to out high energy, high energy. It even starts with those guitar lines that and it makes you think, oh yeah, like the guitar is in high energy. And then you get the boom. It's ostensibly saying that this ain't high energy. This ain't your dad's music. This is the cool new shit with Naito. I think that's a really nuanced way to look at it, as opposed to just it being fast techno. Well, when composers are writing songs, especially if you've got a context that these are going to be part of telling a story, you want to be able to tell some of that story through the music and musical cues. Uh, you know, like, I mean, look at like the Hart family over in WWE. Like Natalia Neidhart's theme is clearly written to evoke Bret Hart's theme. And, and you know, I, I think you can do things like that, tweaking things. Actually, uh, Rick, the model Martell's music uh, got repackaged and shuffled up and that became Val Venus's theme. And uh, now that you mention it, uh, Charlotte having her dad's theme be incorporated into her own. Exactly. It, it gives you this narrative through line because you can tell some of the story right there with the theme song. Um, in a lot of cases, the theme is the first introduction that people have to these characters. So if you can do some of the lifting narratively with the music, that's a great way to go. I, I enjoyed this theme song a lot. I actually find this one to be more memorable than Tanahashi's because for a while, um, like his... Okada's theme song and Naido's theme song tend to blend in my head a little bit. Um, but, like, I, I actually have an easier time divorcing Okada's theme and Naido's theme versus T Tanahashi's high-energy theme. I would um, frequently mistake that for Okada's theme or start humming one and then up humming the other. Uh, because Okada would be the other one that I kind of feel like is... Uh, the heir to Tanahashi's musical motifs. Another interesting thing about this song is that Naito kept it after he turned heel and became who he is today. Because this song is it's so fast-paced and so intense and, and raise your fists and say, yeah. And if you're a hot young baby face with a spitfire attitude who wants to go out there and give it your all, you're going to be the next superstar, yeah. It works. But with... Tranquilo, L.I.J. Naito, he's not like that anymore. Now he's jaded and doesn't give a fuck anymore. So he's not going to play along to the music. He's not going to come out there and briskly walk down the ramp. He's going to take his sweet, sweet time with it coming down to the ring. Maroon suit on, wants to make sure that he doesn't wrinkle it on the way down there. Oh, you want me to walk down faster? Tranquilo, tranquilo, just calm down. And instead of changing the theme to suit his new persona, we still hear in the background as he makes his entrance. So it's this great dichotomy between fast-paced, energetic babyface music and lethargic, apathetic heel character. You want the happy, smiley, go-getter babyface for this song, but I'm not going to give it to you. I don't give a shit if it doesn't but match. 
deal with it. Right there in the entrance, though, you now get a sense of how this guy is going to wrestle. There's all this speed in this motion implied in the music. And then you see the human being walking down to the ring, and they're walking slow and deliberative. And that dichotomy of fast and slow, that has come to epitomize Naido and has really given him the style that makes his matches so much more interesting than they used to be. When it's all fast, you none of it feels fast after a certain right, point, or the right. speed starts to normalize. Like when you get in a car, if you know you put your foot down on the gas, the car starts going and your head jams back against the seat, but eventually you reach 100 miles an hour or 120 miles an hour if you're going insanely fast, and then eventually you have to stabilize, and then that just starts to feel normal. Even though you are going 120 miles an hour, there becomes a normalization effect. Naido has found the art of acceleration inside of the wrestling match. And you see that illustrated with the entrance and the tension between his theme song and how he moves. And this song is basically the last remaining remnant of the old Naito, because he got rid of the Stardust Genius nickname. He got rid of the Stardust Press as his main finisher, but he still uses this theme. So it could go back to the idea of Naito having this seed still within him that he doesn't want to give up. There's still, kind of like Darth Vader, still a bit of good in him, perhaps. He wouldn't want to still be a champion if he truly didn't give a fuck. He would be just there to get a paycheck. Our next theme is for the second man to join LIJ, the king of darkness himself, the man with the laser fingers. And Chris, I am so happy because I finally get to say this in the proper context and not as a joke. Welcome to the darkness world. This is evil. Everything is evil. Subetewa. Evil da. This is Black Deeds. watching the first night of the G1 Climax, the 2017 one, and the match was Evil and Hiromu versus Sonata and Bushi, because Evil and Sonata were going to face off on night two. 
And this was the first time that Evil used this version of Black Deeds. And the bell hits, and the bat wings flutter, and the thunder crashes. And the first thing that it came to mind was the episode of SpongeBob SquarePants, where he gets stuck in rock bottom, which is this really dark, scary town in the deep sea. And he's got a flashlight with him, and the flashlight runs out. And SpongeBob's like, This isn't your average everyday darkness. This is advanced darkness. That's what I thought when Evil came out to this song. This isn't your average everyday evil. This is advanced evil. Because Evil's theme, Black Deeds, without the sound effects, the original version, it's a dark song in and of itself. It's got those low-range metal guitars, lots of distortion, a lot of that womp womp sound effect. It's pretty industrial in tone, I think. It's, it's not a happy song, for sure. It's not a light song. It's a perfect fit for evil. Who is this dark, gruff, heavy kind of guy? But when you add in the church bell, when you add in the bats, when you add in the, the thunder, it just takes everything up a notch. And you don't have to worry about it becoming too over the top. Because evil is already over the top. I mean, his name is Evil, for God's sake. His finisher is called Evil. He wears laser pointers on his fingers, and he carries a giant scythe. So all those extra bits and bobs at the beginning just fit right in with Evil. I like the bits and bobs, as you call them, at the top of the song. I, I think that the intro to the song is the strongest part, and... In wrestling, I mean, really, if you're writing a wrestling theme, it's about what's going on in the intro, and then what is the main riff, and then to a lesser extent, what is happening in the B section, and kind of diminishing returns every section subsequent after. So, you know, with wrestling, it's all about what's happening in the first 35 seconds, and the first 35 seconds of this theme are pretty sweet. Uh, on a compositional note... I think they could use a little more bass going on underneath the guitar. Like when the guitar comes in, it's just, it feels like it's just guitar and drums. And if there is bass, it's mixed pretty low in the mix. I would probably bring some more stuff in there. But I mean, honestly, with his entrance, by the time we get a minute in, he's usually fairly close to the ring. Well, yeah, that's the thing with wrestling themes. Uh, some of them can only go so long before the entrance is over. So. Unless you're Naito, and then you need to have a long... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, the sound effects by themselves are fairly spooky, but in the context of wrestling and music, what sort of, of memories do they evoke when you hear them? Now, if you're a wrestling fan, you'd probably say Ministry of Darkness Undertaker. That entrance music with the bell and the thunder in it, and that version of Undertaker did wear the big robe with the hood on it like evil. So there's another comparison right there. And if you're a heavy metal fan, and Chris, you can back me up on this one, you'd probably think of the opening to the song Black Sabbath by Black Sabbath.
gonna say their first album. Yeah. Which again is this ultra spooky song that defined heavy metal as we know it today. So there's plenty of connective tissue between Black Deeds and other spooky stuff. Now concerning Evil, uh, the man himself, I don't know about you, Chris, but for a long time, I couldn't really take him seriously because he was so goofy looking with the outfit and the name. It took me quite a while to look past all that and, and change my perception of him. Actually, I wrote an article about it for Voices of Wrestling. And I think it was 2017 when I finally turned the corner on him and started to focus on Evil the Wrestler as opposed to Evil the Character. Especially during the G1 when he had those incredible matches with Okada and Omega and Suzuki, guys like that. I, I just love the guy now. The G1 is where a lot of guys get to spread their wings and really establish yeah, themselves yeah as individuals inside of a group unit too and I think that the G1 did wonders for evil I, I had the same issue I, I the guy liner the multicolored hair and all of this stuff especially on a guy who's supposed to be the heavy of the group it's a, a bit of a lift for me but you know in between the ropes he's a great wrestler up next is a theme that can only be introduced by Arnold Schwarzenegger in Batman and Robin all right, everyone, chill. Tonight's forecast, a freeze is coming. You're not sending me to the cooler. All right, I'll stop, Chris, I'll stop. That's, yeah, okay, all right. I'm better for having heard that. <laughs> Listen, all those cold puns are related to the cold skull, Sonata. This is, appropriately, cold skeleton. ever an entrance theme that lived up to its title, it would be this song, because the song it just sounds cold. Like, you know how some songs sound wintry, or sound like light snow is falling down some quaint little village somewhere? This song is not that. This song sounds fucking cold. Like, trapped outside in an ice storm cold. Because it's just that sound that It sounds like just a bone-chillingly cold wind that's breezing through like an, an abandoned mining depot in the Arctic. And it's relentless. It appears throughout the entire song. It never lets up. And it's the dominant sound in the song. Like there's the guitar and the drums and the keyboards in the song. And you can hear them clearly, but they just get overpowered by this cold wind. Yeah, and that is being made... There are two different layers there that are creating that wind effect. You have a wah pedal over a heavily distorted guitar that is wahing over it. And then you also have the 
uh, delayed out very like they remove all of the attack from the guitar and just it's like super echoey and just kind of lays on top of this music which compositionally is pretty clever it, it has a punky metal feel to it and kind of got that misfits head bopping sort of beat which you know, would make sense with the cold skull thing but if you listen to the actual note choices and kind of break it down from that perspective what's kind of interesting is it's the same note clusters that is the core of stone cold steve austin's theme and I wouldn't have necessarily occurred to me on first blush, but then I was thinking about it a little bit closer. I'm like, oh, cold skeleton stone cold. Yeah, all of a sudden you're like, oh, there might be something going on here. And then if you listen a little bit closer, part of that iciness you're hearing is from the sound of breaking glass. Yes. Which perhaps creates the evocative mode of breaking ice, but also reminds me of another theme that has breaking glass in it as a featured instrument. Yeah, I wonder what that could be. <laughs> But uh, as far as the other parts of the song go, they don't help make the song any friendlier. You get this frenzied guitar of da 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 frenzied keyboard beeps. The drums are hard and heavy and fast. Overall, there's just no reprieve anywhere during the song. There's always some disconcerting, uncomfortable sound going on in your ear. And that really works for Sonata, coming out with the black skull mask the black leather pants, the black leather jacket, the baseball bat. He's not a nice guy. He's not a friendly guy. He's not going to take it easy on you. He's as cold as the song itself. He's a punk. Yeah. And that's what's going on in this song. This song is punk-inspired, and so is Sonata. It makes perfect sense, gives you a concept of who this individual is inside of the group, but at some point, if there's a rift between Naido and Sonata it will be fairly easy to draw that contrast in their music. Naido is still the kid who's dreaming of the stars and pretending to not give a shit about it. Sonata is the guy who might legitimately not give a fuck. Yeah, he never smiles. He wears mostly all black. He's just a cold dude. And the song reflects that. Speaking of which, actually, I had this question written down for you, Chris. Do you think the theme still fits Sonata now that he has this new look that he's had for like six months with the horn mask and the new the new pants with the designs on it and getting rid of the baseball bat. I don't. I think this newer Sonata has shown a little bit more personality than the old one with the Paradise Lock and giving the thumbs up to Milano Collection AT and wearing gear that is a lot you know splashier than just a black skull mask and jet black leather pants. I don't think I'll keep this theme forever, but as it stands now, I think it kind of feels out of place for Sonata a little bit. I'm totally with you. I think, however, if you look at our history with New Japan, it's just as likely that he ends up changing his look again and his new look ends up more in alignment with his theme. I would actually expect his theme to stay static for longer than his look will. So he may become more cold, you think? Perhaps. I, or, or his theme ends up creating a contrast against his character, not unlike Stardust does with Naito. I, you know, sometimes these themes, or the way that Nakamura's theme evolved, it stayed the same, but the evocative meaning of the theme evolved as he did. 
Okay, the next theme on our list is for the best dressed man in New Japan, and dare I say, the best dressed man in all of wrestling. It's the Jet Black Death Mask, Bushi. And as the song spells it, that's B U S H I. This is Bushido. Oh my gosh! Fun fact about this song, it's Joey Styles' favorite L.I.J. theme. Oh my gosh! I feel like he wouldn't like the part where it says gosh. Chris, it's a joke. Come on, go with it. Go oh, with I'm sorry. it. Yes, and. Yes, and. I, I need to work on this. I, I keep skipping the improv classes, which is dumb because I'm paying for them, but I never go. Why? Episode ruined. God damn. <laughs> uh, in all seriousness, though... This is some ravey goodness right here. It is extremely electronic heavy, but still, still, there is also this guitar riff that is driving the melody forward. This, which brings us back to the recurring theme in Japan of mixing electronica with rock and roll. But at the end of the day, I mean, the EDM here, it, it just, the beats are just pulsing non-stop. And I think that combo of the EDM and this gnarly guitar solo gives the song more of a personality. It grounds the song, I think. It makes it feel a bit nastier, a bit grimier, as opposed to just the EDM beats, which can, can kind of feel impersonal, I think, because you're just hitting buttons on a computer, pretty much. Right. So it's a cool mix, I think. Yeah, I think that this theme is really interesting and leans very heavily into Bushi's character because that main guitar melody, um, so let's just talk about the tone real quick. Uh, It's that standard wailing Japanese style of lead. However, in production, they decided to make it really dark and in, in effort to do that, rolled back the treble and then added a buttload of reverb so this thing is like really really washed out and then the melody itself is a very helter skelter not like the beatles but like a very sort of crazy and unhinged melody that actually sort of floats in between the major and the minor the melody itself actually plays with the major third which would make the key major but then it's actually a minor key that the song is in so when the melody hits that major, it's like, ooh, that sounds really weird. And it's that design. Like, th- these notes are meant to be out. It's still, they're all rooted in the key center that they're supposed to be in, but there's these notes that are not typically included in that key center. And I think it works really well. Uh, a move that occurs 
here compositionally that occurs in several other of the Los Ingobernables themes is they move. Did I get the name right that time? If I don't think you were about close. it, I feel like I'm. You were close. Like, okay, close. <laughs> like I'm gonna take close. I'm gonna take close, and I'm gonna count that as a W. So. They have the original motif in the A section, and that'll be written in one key center. So in this case, it's the key of A minor. Now, when they move to the B section of the theme, they will modulate it to what should be the relative major. So the relative major from A minor should be C major. But instead of doing the melody in the relative major, they move it up and they play it in a minor key. So instead of C major, it becomes C minor. And that creates... An interesting and, and very distinctly Japanese composition, like J-pop, like it's a very common move inside of J-pop, and, and that occurs in this theme as well. Uh, later on, we get the really chaotic um, guitar harmonies that drop in, and they're like weird harmonies. They're not like standard thirds in major and minor order or even if they are those thirds get weird because the melody is playing with weird out notes as well uh, i think all of this fits into that grimy and slightly unhinged persona that is bushy these days you know there's a part of the song that has always struck me as bizarre and it's the bridge section where you hear vocals from this woman singing <laughs> I never knew where it was from until very recently. It's a sample of vocals from the song Come Alive by Netsky, uh, who's a DJ. And it's sung by a woman named Scarlett Quinn. Too good to be true, our worlds collide. Now I understand why. I spent so long on the other side. Free my heart was gonna die. So look straight into my eyes. Tell me the truth and not lies. Beautiful voice, but I always thought it was weird that Kitamura put a hook from this random house song into Bushi's theme. I mean, they are similar genres, of course, but it feels like an obscure choice to make here. Yeah, there's. Um, we'll get into this a little bit later with Hybridize, but th there were some moves from a production or compositional standpoint that were very um, DJ-y and not music school-y. Uh, to me is probably the best way I could define that. Like you wouldn't do that or you wouldn't teach someone to do that in a music comp class. But if you were a DJ, you might arrive at that move because you're just layering records on top of each other and go, oh, that sounds kind of cool. And you just run with it. And this is another case where Bushi had this theme as a face and he kept it when he turned heel and joined LIJ. I think it works much better with him as a heel. Yes. Because of the whole grimy factor where he's spitting mist and choking people with shirts. Uh, so this sort of unnerving, uncomfortable, grimy rave music, it definitely fits Bushi. I'm at the rave and I'm starting to have an uncomfortable time because the things I took before we went to the rave are starting to kick in and I'm not feeling great. Yes, like That's yes. kind of the vibe I get off of this song. I'm going to put you on the spot here, Chris. Favorite Bushi outfit. 
Oh, God. That is putting me on the spot. Oh, no. You go first, and let me see if I can come up with one. I got to go with the gold and black. That's my favorite color scheme. And I also love the mask that he has with the Terminator eyes. Uh, it's, it's fantastic stuff. Right. Love, love it so much. You know what got me the first time? It's the first time he came out in a suit, and I was like, oh, shit, who is that? And they're like, oh, that's Bushi. And I was like, what? With the, <laughs> really? Okay. Him? He looks cool now. <laughs> Hell yeah. I, so I, I guess it's that first impression that really sticks with you. But, I, I mean, the heel turn and the attitude change or whatever, however you want to frame it, has really gone a long way to just open up what he can do. I think that a lot of these New Japan guys who are baby faces are really hamstrung in terms of what they can do cosmetically. Like there's just a limited option of clothing and attires and presentations that stay true to true New Japan baby face. And it's even harder to arrive at cool, true New Japan baby face. Like anyone can end up being Taguchi. Like you just hit people with your ass and like appeal to the crowd and you're a fan. A fan favorite, but like it's hard to be Tanahashi and be a pure baby face, but also well liked and kind of cool. Yeah, once you flip the switch and turn heel, I think the floodgates are open and you can do whatever you want now. Right, yeah, you go heel, then you can start putting on badass suits and show up, or, or wear cool looking like black stuff and, you know, put steampunk outfits on with black crow wings and yeah. look badass or dress up like Sephiroth. And even if you want to be uncool and dress up like someone from Stargate, yeah. uh, you're still cool because <laughs> you're a bad guy. You are, are not the first person to make that reference, and I'm happy that you did because I'm a really big Stargate SG-1 fan. Hey, I like Stargate. I'm not I'm not dogging Stargate. Oh, but, no, no, no. Um, I did not suggest that at all. Cool factor is not necessarily something I always associate with Stargate. No, no. Uh, admittedly, no. But I, I still enjoyed it when Omega came out dressed like that for his match. Yeah, hell yeah. <laughs> おい、おい、おい。仕掛けられたバックダンがこのタイミングでバックアップするのか。いや、バカじゃん、俺大変なんだよ。うわ。バックアップ損 in any event, it's time to hit the dynamite plunger and lose control right about now. This theme is for Hiromu Takahashi, the ticking time bomb, and it's simply called Time Bomb.
So there's a lot going on in this song. The music, the time bomb, sound effects. Actually, you know, there's a lot going on in pretty much every LIJ song. There's always some cacophony of noise blasting in your ear. There's never a moment of rest. Hiromo's theme, I kind of feel like it's the sister theme to Stardust in a way. Like it's that same type of keyboard slash rock guitar combo done at the same type of a frantic pace except it's a harder edged version of it. Like the guitar, the bass, and drums take a bit more precedence here than the keyboards a lot of the time. As opposed to Stardust where it's the other way around. A different keyboard tone, that's pretty clear. Kind of a harder edge tone than Naito's keyboards. Those have, I think, a poppier sound than Hiromu's. Even the main riff here is a lot more jagged than Stardust. Stardust has a smoother flow to it. You know, Time Bomb, I think, has a much rougher flow. So the two songs exist on two sides of the same coin, in my opinion. Yeah, where the melody takes place for Naito's theme is, if you're going to play it on a guitar, it's it's much higher. It's it's up at the 12th fret there. It's uh, in, at E minor box. Um, with Hiromu's theme, it's actually voiced with like a rhythm guitar part. It's voiced with power chords on the lower strings there. There's not like a high single note melody. It's more of a, a power chord, which is like a root note and, and a fifth. So it's like a... It's a harmony. It tends, especially in the lower registers, it tends to, to a lay person's ear, just register as like a single note or a rock riff would probably be the way you, you standard identify it. Uh, I, I like this song a lot though because you get the uh, the clock that ticks, but the clock is always ticking off, even when it's on beat. Um, it is on the off beat, so there there is a point later on in the song where um, it starts staggering, and instead of starting on the downbeat, um, the clock is always shuffled. So rather than going tick-tock, tick-tock, it goes tick-tock, 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 like a heartbeat. Um, I don't think that's all by accident either. But later on in the song, we, we get the clocks really coming in, and the downbeat that actually falls on the beat is falling on the offbeat. So everything is just leaning into this modality of... Okay, this is a quote-unquote time bomb, but his timer's a little bit off, uh, which is a fun way, uh, a fun metaphor for Hiromu. Yeah, because he's nuts. Right. He's not right in the head. He does these crazy moves to the outside, you know, these diving sentons and sunset flip power bombs, puts his body on the line. So he is off in that sense, and he's off in just you know, being a weirdo. I mean, with the whole Daryl thing and calling the IWGP junior title Mr. Belt. So it does coincide with the theme music being explosive and chaotic and, and also offbeat, like you said. So it works both ways. You feel that in the intro. Like, there's a lot of shit going on in the intro with, like, the bass line that kind of shows up there early yeah, on. Yeah, dun, 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 dun. And eventually yeah, yeah. we resolve into that main guitar riff, which creates the, the core of our music bomb and other artifacts start to fly around this core. But you can understand the core of the explosive device. It's, it's fairly simple. It's gunpowder in an actual explosive device. And in this case, it's that guitar riff. Uh, but there's still a whole bunch of chaotic sh- shit swirling about it. Uh, it. It's 
it's a good metaphor for who Hiromu is inside of the ring. You know, if you think about it, if Naito had changed his theme when he turned heel in 2015, he could have used this song. It's the same category of music, but it's more aggressive and fitting for a heel. Uh, this theme is built around the time bomb gimmick, of course. It has the ticking clock, the lit fuse, the big boom going off. But if you remember in the Stardust theme, that has a couple of booms as well. One at the beginning and one at the end. And the repeated line, talk about losing control right about now. Well, Naito does keep a calm, cool, collected head most of the time. But there are other times where he'll grab the camera and shake it. Or he'll grab the referee and throw him to the ground and stomp on him. He'll go nuts. He'll lose his temper. And what was the name of Naito and Evil's tag finisher, the double gorilla press slam? Out of control. So there you go. Uh, I think it could have worked if they went in that direction. Yeah, I think that it, you could just keep the, the standard uh, guitar, like or the standard melodic convention that they do on Naito's theme of the... You can move that down a key, so it's like... And lay it right over the Hiromo theme and really sort of have that direct through line from Stardust to Time Bomb. Some more stuff from my notes here. Uh, I love the structure of the song, especially the intro, where the first 20 seconds or so is lighting the fuse and starting the countdown clock. And it builds and it builds and it builds... Then you get that big guitar drop in there, that with the ticking clock getting louder into the boom and the rest of the song. I, I love that a lot. You know, wrestling themes have a real benefit of you get to make a big intro. And unlike normal pop songs where we get taught compositionally to trim down intros or if you can, just get rid of them entirely and just start right in the first verse. It's with wrestling the listener's ear wants a big buildup. So by the time we get that, like, you know, that payoff, the, the going up the roller coaster, it's clacking, 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 and then, like, it lets us go and we're down the first hill. Wrestling themes have that same sort of effect, and so it's very easy to lose yourself in the music after that intro and into that build. Yeah, you don't really see radio edits in wrestling themes. Yeah, I guess sometimes you get them at the end of matches, right? Oh, that's like true. they'll edit that's someone's true. theme so that we don't do the 30 seconds of intro after they win the belt because it'd be weird. But as far as like the entrances themselves go, there are very few times when themes get edited down. Right, right, yeah. You wouldn't necessarily want to hear Randy Orton's theme just start right at the verse. Yeah. That'd be weird. Uh, uh, Chris, um, what are your thoughts on the latter half of Hiromu's 2017 when he lost the belt back to Kushida and then he lost his mind even further with Daryl and all that stuff? I think everyone likes... Hiromu losing his mind and so him losing a little bit here and there especially with strategic losses that can lean into his character I think that works look at Will Ospreay beating Marty Skrull he had to lose a whole bunch in order for that Skrull win to feel the way it felt and I think with Hiromu him losing his mind on the way to getting the belt will be a lot of fun. And then it'll be even more fun if he's also a completely deranged champion. 
you can keep telling this story. Well, he was a deranged champion, like I said. You know, he talked to his own belt. But yeah, I, I don't mind goofy shit in wrestling. I love Taguchi, I love Yano, I love all that stuff. And I like Daryl, too. I just didn't like how Hiromu was put on the back burner for the second half of the year. I think you could have had Takahashi remain the champion and still had him get Daryl as like a little side thing and sort of build this weird family of him, Mr. Belt, and, and Daryl, and Carol, and Daryl Jr., and just be this fucking dominant, psychotic champion who has inanimate objects for friends and does crazy moves and still beats everybody up. I think you could have done that. I worry about any wrestler getting overexposed like a Kushida, where it feels like, at least watching Wrestle Kingdom the other night, it felt like this is a guy who's had his story told. And what are we doing with this dude now? That's a good point. That's a good point, yeah, yeah. There are obviously positives and negatives on both sides uh we'll just see how it goes for hiromu in 2018 i guess yep now we just played hiromu's theme we played bushi's theme right before it now it's time to smush the two together and play their mashup theme this is hybridize Now, mashup themes are not the easiest thing in the world to do, nor are they always necessary when you have a tag team. I mean, there are some notable examples of mashup themes that, quite frankly, never needed to exist in the first place. Whoa, 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 whoa. I have a feeling you're about to say the Rybaxel theme was some sort of atrocity and slash or a war crime against music, and I'm not going to stand here and just <laughs> listen to that kind of dreck on this podcast. Chris Novembrino, defender of meat on the perfect table. Mm. That's your new moniker, I suppose. Is that the name of that theme? Yeah, that's the name of the theme. Oh my god, that's a horrible Meat title. on the... Per it's fucking terrible. Oh it's god. fucking awful. Just awful. But we'll save that for another time. When Bushi and Hiromu became sort of a, a semi-regular junior tag team, they could have come out to just Bushi's theme, or just Hiromu's theme. Or they could do what LIJ does a lot of the times, where one guy will come out, his music will play, then he'll stand in the entranceway, and the next guy's music will play, and he'll come out, and they'll walk to the ring together. Easy. But in this case, they did do a mashup theme of Bushido and Time Bomb. So what Kitamura did was he took elements of Time Bomb, and he took elements of Bushido, and he smushed them together. And in my opinion, I guess, I think he does a fairly decent job of it. 
Some of this stuff really works, and some of it kind of doesn't. Yeah, it's not a perfect song. Mashup themes are rarely perfect, but I think the, the parts that gel together do so really well. And it does get the team of Bushi and Hiromu across through the music. It's, it's this bombastic, crazy rave rock, which reflects the frenzied style of Bushi and Hiromu. And it also falls in line with the other LIJ themes, which are also quite bombastic. So let's focus on the core of this theme, because I, I think that the general kernel of the idea that they had going into this was clever and totally works. And it is you take the low guitar riff from Time Bomb, which is in the key of D minor, and over the top of that, you put the main guitar hook from Bushi's theme, which is ostensibly in A minor, but the main out note is is a C sharp, which is actually the leading tone in a D melodic minor scale. I know I'm getting really music nerdy on you. All of this <laughs> is to say that the two keys that these riffs are written around share almost all of the notes with each other exclusively uh, or, or the very, very complementary note structures and note clusters. So when you get that dark bushy guitar over the main time bomb guitar early in the song, it lays really nicely and it's, it's kind of weird. It's a little out there, but, but it actually makes musical sense. The part that doesn't work is later on, they take the B section from Bushi's theme, where they move from A minor to C minor, and then you have this riff that is in C minor, but like is kind of a weird C minor too, and that's being laid over a D minor, um, that guitar riff from Time Bomb again, which is D minor, and it just it doesn't sound good. Uh, it, it, the notes don't make sense, and so production-wise, what the, the producer did there is just kind of a little bit of knob magic to make those notes maybe not so distinguishable, so you can kind of tell that they're there, but can't really tell which ones they are because they don't sound great. And it's not just mashing the two songs together. Kitamura actually remixed the songs, and he, he added little uh, bits and bobs here and there. There's a He's moment... got the master files, I'm assuming. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, they're, they're both his songs, so... Right, yeah, so he can go track by track and take the individual tracks and the individual layers and cut and chop and, you know, permute them onto each other. Yeah, yeah, there's this moment where there's this breakdown into like a, a furious bass line that isn't in the original songs. So stuff like that is pretty cool, I think, where you can do new things and in that way make the mashup theme stand out amongst the other mashup themes. I generally like the idea of mashup themes. I just think that you have to have a little bit more of a nuanced or finesse-minded approach to how you take these two pieces of music and mush them together, particularly if you've got the source tracks. So if that means taking a melody from one theme song and changing the key on it, I, I think you should assume that the listeners are smart enough 
to identify the musical motifs even when they change keys um, rather than feeling like you have to give them the notes in the key that everyone has always associated with this person. Because, like, for example, um, Kane's theme song. They've changed his theme a number of times, and, and when they do changes on his theme song, one of the things that they do is they'll, they'll occasionally change the key center, uh, and people still can identify the Kane organ chords that mark the beginning of the song, even if you change the key. Yeah, mashup themes, like we said, they're either really good or really bad, and I guess... Those extremes are probably why we don't have that many to go around. Well, like, think about this. How many mashup songs do people in your normal life listen to regularly? It's just, it's a musical convention that we all recognize as kind of tacky or trashy or lower tier. Even if we don't necessarily put our finger on it or a word to it like that on the regular. There's a reason why you subconsciously choose to never listen to mashups or you'll hear a mashup and go, that's cool, and then move on with your life. We end now at the beginning, Chris. The album ends with the song Stardust, but it's a remixed version by Yonosuke Kitamura. They usually play it at the end of shows or in video packages. This is Stardust, Tranquilo version. I'm someone who loves the original version of this song. Me too. Having said that, I've been listening to this version pretty much on a loop because I love it so much. And I'm not a guy who listens to electronic trance dance music all the time. I'm more of a rock guy in general. But this song, I think, is pretty fucking awesome. Kitamura, the guy, he just knows how to make a theme. He's made some iffy ones, but I think for the most part, he knows his stuff, because he's taking Stardust here, and he's doing all sorts of effects and noise drops, and he's making this part sound like a theremin, and he's making that part sound like a brass section, and this other part sounds like a saxophone, and none of it ruins the flow of the song. The tempo may be a bit slowed down, and it doesn't start with those frantic guitars. It starts with that low synth wave with the vocal sample. Tranquilo, tranquilo. But I still think it's great. Yeah, I, I like this a lot. I think it's uh, it's not better than the original, but it, it is a theme that, as you said, it grew on me. Um, the more 
I listened to it. I was kind of like trying to tease out the differences between the original Stardust and this one and some of the compositional choices that were made here. So obviously this uh, theme is post-dubstep really becoming a major musical genre. And if you're involved in electronic music on any level, you now have to kind of at least know your way around mixing in dubstep styles. Uh, And a lot of that stuff is done here fairly tastefully um fairly subtly and I'm, I'm someone who doesn't really care for that genre of music so like when those conventions get into music i'm like usually like eh, but like this is done with a pretty light touch and isn't um isn't too jarring i love at the end when there is a, a lead voice that is either a saxophone or a guitar run through a distortion pedal that has the bias greatly reduced going into it so like when you're playing the note it doesn't quite fully sustain it just sort of like fizzles out it's a really great sound so it's either a heavily modulated saxophone that sort of sounds like a guitar or a heavily modulated guitar that sounds like a saxophone that's really cool and then the one thing that occurs in this that does not occur in the original is the occasional modulation from E minor to C sharp minor, which is another parallel minor. Um, and, and then, like, the way he gets out of it is he, he goes back from the C sharp minor, he'll go to the C and then get back into the key of E again, which is the where the main riff is. Um, it's cool. It gives a little added motion to the melody. I think for Naito... He's got a a main eventer's melody. And and what I mean when I say that is that the core of his melody, the... Like, that is a very simple, very hummable melody that occurs in, like, the natural human melodic range. And you can tweak that melody over a lot of different chords you can put it through a lot of different genres and you could do that very slow or you could do it a little bit faster if you want to do like a retrospective sort of thing there's a lot of options with that melody that aren't necessarily going to be available with a composition like time bomb right like you can't imagine time bomb being slowed down and put on a solo guitar and arranged for something like that but you could very easily imagine something like stardust being arranged solo you know what this song actually reminds me of i just thought of this the other day remember back in the 90s when moby covered the james bond theme yeah no i think that that's very present here like the these chord changes yeah and he mobified it and he made it all electronic and hip and cool. I get the same vibes here because it's the same basic song, but it's been remixed with these new fancy sounds. So there is a very spy noir sort of quality to Stardust. It's actually in the same key as the James Bond theme. Yeah, um. Say, yeah, same key as uh, James Bond's theme. 
And, and it is actually not impossible to hear a remix in my head of Stardust that is done more in like, yeah, Action Bond, circa 1999, GoldenEye era. But still, though, I think you would agree, Chris, that it's best that this song does not become Naito's actual theme. Yeah, no, no, no. Keep it as a special occasion for video packages and the end of shows. It doesn't have to be his theme. It's a fine alternate. It just, it's no value added off of his original theme. It's its cool. It's a good composition. It's got a place in Naito's theme bundle. But as a replacement over the main, no way. I wouldn't do it. I don't like the voice on the lead line in this one nearly as much as the other one. I think that the like the lead voice, that synth voice that they went with, sounds kind of Mega Man X series E in a way that's not like a good thing. And I'm I'm saying this is a guy who loves Capcom compositions. I it sounds a little it sounds a little low rent. I'll take your word for it. How about that? Fair enough. Alright. <laughs> Defer to the experts. I'm all about that. Alright, that was our look at the themes of Los Ingobernables de Japón. A fine group of wrestlers, a fine group of songs. And you know, whatever life has in store for them, win or lose can't take away just how awesome these guys are, Chris. No, no. I, and I think great success is going to come their way in 2018 and 2019. Absolutely. And uh, that's going to do it for this episode of Music of the Mat. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you, Chris, for coming on the show again. This was a lot of fun to have you back on. To be honest, it kind of felt at times like I was sitting in a music theory class, but that's your expertise and that's what makes you such a knowledgeable host and it's so informative. It's all about getting a different type of analysis between the hosts, which I, I very much appreciate. Yeah, I, I hope that it wasn't a little too over the head. I didn't want to break down sharps and flats or anything like that, but I thought you all might dig taking it a little bit deeper. I, you know, people find out that I'm like a musician, and it's a surprise to them, so I think maybe I should bring it up a little bit more in 2018 or something. It's a, it's a thing I've been doing for uh, about a decade or so. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> is this the part where I plug my shows? Yes. Uh, what do you have to plug? Absolutely. So I'm on Twitter. I'm at C-H-R-I-S-N-O-V-E-M-B-R-I-N-O. That is my Twitter. I tweet about wrestling, politics, music, and basketball, and occasionally grumble about how certain players are ruining my fantasy team. But I'm never too serious about that. Like, I, I want them all to do well. I host a couple of podcasts. I host Don't Worry About the Government, um, which you can find over at Don'tWorry.tv. That is a news and politics podcast. I also host Lucha of the Hidden Temple, which will be back at some point in 2018 here on Voice of Wrestling. So, you know, stick around. And, you know, if you want to bother other hosts to have me come on their show, that's, that's an easy way for me to get booked on Voice of Wrestling more often. And I'm also going to be launching this month. I'm super excited about this, Andrew. A, the All in the Family podcast. You know oh. the classic television show, All in the Family? Oh, of course. Yeah, with Archie and... Edith and Meathead and all the rest of them. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, all the rest of them. Yeah, I, I thought now's as good a time as any for uh, us as a society to take maybe a look back at All in the Family and take a look at some of the parallels, some of the writing. I, I just thought it was would be a fun retrospective series. So if you are interested in that, um, you can find our, our homepage right now is patreon.com slash podcast. We will also be up at 
onthefamilypodcast.com. Um, that website's not live yet, but that is going to be coming here in 2018, probably in the next four weeks. So be on the lookout for that. Uh, I'll be tweeting about that and all of that sort of good jazz. I'm excited. I think this is the first place that I've gotten to announce that. So you're breaking news here today, my man. Well, look at that. Huh? Hot scoops coming through. Look out. Uh, they're all over Voice of Wrestling. Yeah. You, just, you look at scoops are just coming at you. Overflowing with scoops. We, we oh can't my God, it. so many scoops. And Music of the Mat is part of the Voices of Wrestling podcast network. Check out VoicesOfWrestling.com for so many great wrestling podcasts like Lucha of the Hidden Temple or Burning Spirits, New Japan Procast, Everything Evolves, Brit Rez Roundtable, Five Star Match Game, and so much more. VoicesOfWrestling.com. Follow the show on Twitter at Music of the Mat. Follow me on Twitter at Andrew T. Rich. Go to the Voices of Wrestling forums. That's where you'll find the YouTube playlists for each episode. VoicesOfWrestling.com slash forum. Subscribe to the show on iTunes or Google Play. And while you're there, give us a lovely rating and review. Appreciate it so much. And just in general, tell your friends about the show. We love getting new listeners on board and hearing all sorts of great feedback. So let's keep this ball rolling in 2018. And, and also... I will plug this now. The 2017 edition of the New Japan Year in Review ebook that Voices of Wrestling does every year, it's now available to buy. Voicesofwrestling.com slash NJPW17book. That's the number 17. Uh, that's where you'll find the links to the book. There are two methods to pay for it. You can get it on PayHip, and that's pay what you want, or get it on Amazon Kindle for $5.99. A lot of hard work went into this book, uh, from the writing, to the editing, to the stats gathering, to getting the artwork. I wrote a bunch of stuff for it, as did a whole collection of wonderful writers. So if you want to throw down a few bucks and and buy the book, that'd be so amazing. Because every single cent that goes towards the book is distributed amongst the contributors. So I just want to put that out there. Again, VoicesOfWrestling.com slash NJPW17book. So, for Chris Novembrino, I'm Andrew Rich. I'll see you next time on Music of the Mat. And remember, keep it calm, keep it cool, keep it... Music of the Mad is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. The songs used throughout this show are property of their respective copyright holders. Here it comes again, lunch. Will it be the same old, same old? Or are you ready to take a vacation from the ordinary with the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub at Firehouse Subs? Freshly sliced smoked turkey breast, craveably sweet mustard sauce, and a hint of Caribbean seasoning. Just $5.55 for a medium. Save time. Order the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub on the Firehouse Subs app. Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs. Save more lives. Participating locations. Limited time only, plus tax. Prices may vary for delivery.